Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Lats Factor Podcast. What is up, College Lacrosse fans? You're watching the 166th episode, I think, of the Lax Factor Lacrosse podcast. We could be on 167. I'm not sure. You're going to have to look at the title. But uh, today, we're going to finish off the college lacrosse season before I dive into the PLL. I, I wrote a whole PLL thing up for every single game, and then as I read through it, I didn't like it. I'm not sure exactly how I want to cover it, but I know I don't want to cover the PLL the exact same way I do as college lacrosse. So we'll get to that next week, but let's finish off the college lacrosse season. We have two things to talk about this year. We're going to talk about the new coaching staff changes at Syracuse and the announcement of Petro now as uh, what the defensive coordinator for that team, which is crazy. And then I want to go in and I want to do my season-ending uh, NCAA Division One Lacrosse Awards, Lax Factor, NCAA uh, Lacrosse. I'll you know whatever we'll call it something here by the time I get to it, but. That's what we're going to do today. Before I get into that, as always, be sure to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell, and uh, you can also go to laxfactor.com, watch our stuff there, listen to our stuff there, and you can also purchase swag there, hats, coffee mugs, shirts, whatever. So let's get into this here. The The new news here for all of us Syracuse fans, as I know you guys all want to hear me talk about, at least the Syracuse fans do, is Petro. Uh, Dave Petromala being named the defensive coordinator for the Syracuse men's lacrosse team, which is crazy. I know a lot of Syracuse alum um, just want to see him wear orange. Uh, they just want to see him put on an orange hat and 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 rock it, rocking the orange shirt, navy blue with orange, whatever. Syracuse fans just want to see Petro wearing various shades of the team colors because it'll be hilarious. Famously here, uh, Petro, longtime Hopkins coach, best defensive player to ever play the game. Now he's coupled with the best offensive player and potentially the best player to ever play the game in Gary Gates. So we have the two if you talk to if you pooled the lacrosse world at large the lacrosse world at large would would end up telling you that these are the two best players to ever play the college lacrosse game is is what i firmly believe definitely petro is being the best defensive player and if you started polling guys that are a little bit too young they may not put gate in as the best college lacrosse player of all time but any you start including the the generation of let's say 30 and up 35 and ups those guys are all pretty much going to give gate that nod partly because he was the first to do it and was the first to revolutionize the offensive game in lacrosse, but also because he did it at every level. He dominated the college level. I think he was the five-time consecutive NLL player of the year. Uh, he, he won championships in the MLL. He he did it everywhere. He won he won championships everywhere he goes. He, he won two or three at Syracuse. He won uh, a bunch in the NLL and a bunch in the MLL as well. So the guy, the guy is just a winner. And then in terms of just a coach, win it. He won at Maryland. He's won at Syracuse. So they had they just put two of two of the the biggest names in the sport together here on this coaching staff, and it's crazy. Also, March is going to stay on as the offensive coordinator, as I had reported and others had had hinted at. So that is a thing as well. Now for Hopkins. You know, you figure this dude had 207 wins at Hopkins, Petro did, in his 20-plus um, 
Oh, and then he had 20-plus at Cornell as well. And that's an interesting note is Hopkins' last two head coaches – both were robbed from Cornell. Uh, Petro was at Cornell and was hired away from there after I think three seasons, twenty wins, three seasons, and he ended up ended up at Hopkins. Petro has mentored one hundred All Americans, won national championships in '05 and 2007, and like Desco at Syracuse, he was being chirped relentlessly ever since that final national championship. As Hopkins did not get back to the title game and win again. He, he's been chirped. He was chirped nonstop by alum and Hopkins fans. So coming into this situation, replacing Desco, who was the guy he coached against for so many years that was also being chirped. That's, that's interesting uh, to say the least. I got my, my, my old laptop here. This is my old origin PC. This is my work laptop. This thing is a hunk of meat here, but it keeps going to sleep on me. Um, so yeah, hundred, hundred all Americans. This guy knows how to coach. Uh, he's a leader of men to be certain. And I, I like that this shows that Syracuse is willing to do whatever it takes to get the best coaching staff on campus possible. They bring in gate who it had been rumored for many, many years that gate was the coach in waiting that the reason gate ended up at Syracuse as the women's coach, as opposed to giving up what he had built at Maryland was so that he could sit there and wait for the men's head coaching job to, open up. And I had always resisted that. It didn't make sense with all the uh, success that he ended up having at the, in the girls game. I, I didn't see him jumping ship. I saw him doubling down and continuing to win at the girls game and just being that dude wears a suit. I wonder if he'll continue to wear a suit as the men's coach here. I bet you he doesn't. I bet you he ditches it for some more comfortable garb. We'll see. But uh, I figured he would stay in the girls game. I legitimately did not think he had an interest in the position, even though everyone had always said that. Then you had the, the camp that thought Galloway should be the next guy up. And and then you had the camp that thought they should bring the Powells in and or just hire the best coach out there. Go out there and, and pick up the best coach that you could hire away from an existing program that was doing a really good job. So I thought they were going to go that route. I was legitimately surprised when I heard that Gate got the gig, and then the rumors immediately started. And I got to say, a couple of my sources nailed it because they said from the very beginning that Gate would be named the head coach. They all said from the very beginning that Petro was the top candidate to become the defensive coordinator. So those things both happened. They all said that March was going to stay on. I did hear mention of a Powell, and we haven't heard anything uh, about a Powell coming on board yet. I, I would f assume that if they did bring a Powell on, it would be in like a team management capacity, recruiting capacity, as I think where they would do the best, and then just generally helping coach all positions. But uh, we'll see how that goes. But the one rumor that still has not been fulfilled yet that was people were very sure about right from the beginning is that both of Petro's sons will be decommitting from North Carolina and will be heading to Syracuse. That would be as big a news as getting Gate and Petro in the first place. We already have the number one recruit uh, of the 2023 class in Joey Spalina coming to Syracuse. The number two recruit in that same class is Petro's son, uh, the attackman, and then he has a four-star defenseman who's a son, both heading to North Carolina here. So that's the other rumor. The other rumor, and actually I've even heard that it's already, whether they've officially decommitted or they've just you know mentioned it to Bresci, I've already heard, I've heard, actually heard through one source that they it is official. They have already decommitted from North Carolina and they're just, Syracuse is just waiting or they're just waiting to roll this information out in sequence in a way that makes sense. You saw Syracuse do that last year um, as they were trying to announce the seniors coming back. I had, I had come out with it, that, hey, I hear every single senior is coming back and then they slow rolled that update out. So I think this might be a press thing, but the, the next rumor that has not been fulfilled yet 
all coming from people who have nailed every aspect of this so far is that Petro's sons will end up at Syracuse. So that mean that would mean if it's true that Syracuse ends up with the number one and the number two uh, kids from the 2023 class, both playing attack for him, which would be huge. And it would come at a time where they had spots open. So this would just be a no brainer. We end up with two freshmen starting on attack, most likely that first year. Uh, that they're playing together, which I, I would be cool with because they're both filthy dirty. Um, let's see here. And then to those that talk about the level of adjustment that's going to be needed between Gate trying to figure out the men's game with Petro having to kind of come from being a head coach for his whole coaching, you know, most of his coaching career, now back down to an assistant here at, at, the, at the D1 level. I don't think it's as big of an adjustment as people think. I think the biggest adjustment that we're going to have with this Q's team, and it's partly just a, a, a we have to keep our expectations tempered, is that this D, that we don't have a championship roster right now. We're losing some key components, especially defensively. We already didn't have a very good defensive lacrosse team last year. It wasn't the system. I, I think that largely it was the personnel overall just didn't gel, and I don't think we had the real, you know, that one or two true lockdown defenders that you end up having to have at this level for your defense to really compete, especially in the ACC. So we had a, a killer goalkeeper that had struggled partly because the defense struggled in front of him, and I think that's going to be the biggest adjustment. Partly, the biggest adjustment is going to be we have to temper our expectations because, sure, we got a killer coaching staff in place, but they all have to figure out how to work together just generally as coaches. But more importantly, we don't have a roster that would, that would allow them to just come in use that excitement and that 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 flow that they end up get getting rolling because a lot of times teams will overachieve with new coaching staff especially one as exciting as this with the experience that these guys all have um I just think that the the defense is that's going to be the biggest part March is staying offensively we've got weapons returning they already know the system defensively they've got to now kind of learn a new system and I'll, I'll, I'll be curious to see how far does Petro being the veteran coach that he, that he is, does he kind of not change too much initially? And does he slow roll his system into place as opposed to just coming in and putting it in and then now these guys got to run by this? Or does he slow roll it into place so that there's a little bit of continuity between the, the two seasons? I don't know, but I think that's going to be the biggest biggest adjustment. They're going to have to learn a new defensive system a new goalie with a team that already was not very good defensively last year. So I think that's big. And then I think from the gate side, sure, he hasn't coached professionally men's lacrosse, but he's played men's lacrosse professionally his whole life. He he is a team manager, and that's what you have your assistance for. So for people who are like, well, hey, Gate's going to have to figure out the offensive flow. Not really. March is going to do that. Gate is going to put in place what he wants, and then March, they're probably going to run a continuation of the offense they've been running, I would presume, with a little bit of a, more of an emphasis on two-way play out of midfielders, and then with a little bit more emphasis on pushing the ball in transition from defense to offense. And I think that you're going to see polls, and I think that the, our, we'll start recruiting polls that can get up in transition, because I think that, that that's the one thing that excites me the most about this these two guys being together is I hope to God they try to bring back a little bit of that old school lacrosse that they played and that they loved. That's yet to be seen, but I think that that's, you know, that that's how that's going to go. I think gate will be fine. He's going to lean on those, a uh, 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 defensive coordinator that has 20 plus years as a head coach under his belt. Uh, March, who is a young up and coming offensive kind of wizard is how he's touted, but March has done a really good job on the recruiting trail as well. 
And uh, so I think that, you know, there's going to be adjustments that have to be made, but I don't think that it's where people are, you know, the talking heads are kind of just throwing out, oh, it's going to be tough for gate to transition from men's to women's. Maybe, but probably not. This is going to be a pretty natural thing. And for Petro going from being a head coach to an assistant, I did it. It's not the same level, but I coached at Broom for six years as the head coach, and then I took a year off, and then I came back as my former assistant coach's assistant coach, and that was fine. You know, it was actually, if anything, it was a little bit of a relief because you didn't have all the responsibility. You just showed up and coached and then went home as an assistant coach. And I know that's not what Petro's going to do, but Petro's coming into, into a situation where he doesn't necessarily have to deal with all the headaches that he used to as a head coach. He just gets to show up and do his job. And to me, that was actually refreshing coming back after being the team organizer as the head coach for so long, just getting to show up to practice, coach some kids up, and then get the hell out of Dodge. So I don't think it'll be as big of a deal as people think. Now, the other big thing, like I talked about, is the transfers. Like for the, for this is all a really big change, but the landscape of Syracuse lacrosse could change overnight in terms of recruiting already just because of these coaches being in place, but also because if the Petromala boys do decommit from North Carolina and head to Syracuse, that is going to be nuts for Syracuse, and that's going to just cause a lot of kids to be like, hey, wait a minute, they got the number one and number two kids in the 2023 class coming there. Who do we pick up next year? maybe uh, that, that isn't committed yet, or maybe that decommits and flip-flops. Who do we pick up in uh, you know new guys out of that 2023 class? So I think that it really gives them an opportunity over the next two years to maybe fill that roster out a little bit with some four-star talent that hasn't committed yet because they want to be a part of this new regime here at Syracuse, and I think that might be a good way to immediately improve the, the depth and the overall talent on the roster, even if that doesn't necessarily translate into a bunch of wins next year. Not that they're not going to do fine next year. They're going to be okay next year. Cuse is good every year, but you know how it goes. Um, so I think that's a big play. Uh, you know, and, and in the end, I'm just excited. As a Syracuse fan, there hasn't been – we've been excited, but we've been excited in ways that, you know, an NFL fan gets excited every year. Every year as an NFL fan, as a Giants fan, this is the year that we stop sucking and we win, uh, you know, a Super Bowl. In the Syracuse case, it's never this is the year we stop sucking, but this is the year we stop sucking in the NCAA tournament. And you have those expectations every year. This year, there's truly – something new to look forward to uh, as opposed to just hoping that the roster that's, that comes back is is good enough. All right, I've ran, rambled about that enough now. Let's dive into now my Lax Factor All NCAA team. Uh, we're going to go through position by position, and then I have a couple end-of-the-year awards. And we're going to start, hopefully I start doing this yearly, the biggest balls of them all award that I'm going to do at the end. So we're going to go through and list my kind of first team that I would put up here if I was able to just put a team together based on uh, this season's uh, player pool here. So attackmen, we'll go with those guys first. Jared Bernhardt out of Maryland, 71, 71 goals, 28 assists. Best player in the country overall, at least in terms of what he meant to his team, uh, in terms of what he put on the field, game in and game out, in terms of production, uh, efficiency in that production. Jared Bernhardt, no-brainer on that list. I go with Michael Sowers on attack as well. With him, 37 goals, 44 helpers for Duke, the transfer from Princeton. Had a really good season. Duke, I think, among all the teams, had a harder time putting it together. Uh, you look at a lot of the teams that added talent in um, in transfer, Duke had a, a harder case because of Chris Gray you, you know, that came to Carolina the year before. You plop him in, and he does a lot of off-ball stuff. He does a lot of carrying of the ball, but he he puts his points up without the ball 
being in his hands or most of his points or at least half of his points up without having the ball in his hands as the primary Dodger, whereas Sowers is a primary Dodger. So I think that Duke offense, they needed that. They needed that primary Dodger, but I think it took them a little bit of a little while to, to figure things out. Maybe that was a lack of quality at the midfield. On paper, Duke's midfield was filthy in practice. And in terms of point production, they didn't do quite as much. So there was a lot of, I, I thought Duke did a lot of carrying the ball too much, not enough moving the ball around. I didn't think they were selfish. I just think they looked like a team that didn't figure it out. But Sowers still, without Mike Sowers being added to that team, Duke does not make the final four. Duke is, Duke is probably close to the basement of the ACC if they don't have Sowers on that roster. So he really was that important. And without him, forget about the tournament run and uh, and making it to the Final Four. They don't they do not do that without Mike Sowers on that team. Chris Gray is my other. So I go with Bernhardt, Sowers, and Gray as my first team attack. I'm only going to have one team, by the way. 49 goals, 42 assists out of Gray. Now, Gray came in tearing it up, and all talk was about Gray. And then I felt like his the second half of his season, while still fine, he still did well. He led North Carolina helped lead North Carolina to a Final Four appearance, I felt like he was much quieter in the second half of the season versus that first half. And it could have been quality of opponents, but he tore up the the ACC initially in some of those games early as well. I think a lot of it was teams just figuring out a little bit more as the season went on what to do to limit North Carolina to a degree and to just limit Gray's chances. And I think they did a decent job of keeping him a little more bottled up than he was earlier in the year because he was running rough shot all over everybody earlier in the year. But either way, still one of the best players in the country. Certainly, I think those three, it's a no-brainer. They are the three best attackmen in the country. You can make arguments right, you know, for the guys that fill in right behind them, but those are the three best attackmen for sure. Now, the midfielders were a little bit tougher just because there's a lot of deserving guys and point production plays, but it doesn't always play. So I had a problem with my third spot, and I'll talk about it when I get there. But my first uh, midfielder that I picked was a no-brainer to me, Jungle Jack Hanna out of Denver. 37 goals, 10 helpers, struggled shooting. Han- the, the, what I like about Hannah is he's able to get shots off. He's, he's dominant in terms of being a Dodger. You know, teams can't stop him. He is a matchup problem because he is a big boy to be certain. But he struggled with his shooting percentage. He struggled more, I think, a little bit earlier than later. But, uh, you know, he's still. I think he he's still got another year to come back and, and continue to develop and lead Denver as well. So 37 goals, 10 assists as a midfielder. You're not going to cry about that, but it probably should have been in the area of 45 to 47 goals. I think he's that good. And I think he'd say, you know, 10 goals that he, that he didn't put it in the back of the net that he should have. You could argue that easily. You could watch games with Hannah and you could say that just in a single game, there was probably two goals that he should have had that he didn't just because the shooting percentage has been low. Uh, another guy that I like, and I don't know if he deserves to be on the first team, but I like what he did for the team that he did it for, and I like how he did it, was Kevin Rogers, a a throwback midi of sorts, 38 goals, 11 assists for high point. I think he was high point's second leading scorer as well. He is the, I for always mix these guys up between him and Bertrand. I think Rogers was the D3 transfer maybe from Gettysburg or something like that. I can't remember now, so don't crucify me for it. But just a a great midfielder, great shooter, scorer, dodger, tough guy, cut his hair between his D3 ball and coming to high point. Uh, So he's a ginger with long hair, you know, but he he got that cut and looked all clean cut and trim. Uh, 
this year. But anyway, Rogers 38 and 11, a hell of a midfielder. And I just decided I watched so many high point games. There was no way in which I didn't put him on this team, especially considering that he was right up there in terms of being one of the leading scoring midfielders in the country. Now, this was the tough spot. I was I was I wanted to give this spot to Nakai Montgomery because I felt like he was a team leader for Duke and all that. But in terms of the overall point production and all that, I ended up giving it to Graham Bundy Jr. I watched a bunch of Georgetown games. I was insanely impressed with Graham Bundy Jr. 36 goals, 12 assists. He did make one of the two All-American teams. I can't remember if he was a first or a second team All-American. But uh, for me, I just ended up being a big fan of his. He was my favorite offensive player on that Georgetown team as a midfielder. And I felt like he he kind of helped them keep pace here. Now, granted, they got whooped by Virginia at the end of the day. But, you know, you can't. not everybody's going to beat Virginia. And some teams just got to get beat by somebody badly. But I felt like Graham Bundy Jr. was a big part of what Georgetown did. He was an insanely effective midfielder and efficient midfielder. You know, pretty much an attackman running midfield. All right, let's go now to short stick D mids, and uh, this one I don't I don't think I'm controversial here either. Uh, Danny Logan, out of Denver, you can't argue with the kid's stats: four goals, five helpers, forty six ground balls, and sixteen caused turnovers as a short stick D mid, one of the best in the game. There's a bunch that we could have put on this list here, but then I for my number two I listed two short stick D mids: uh, Roman Paglazzi. I could have gone with uh, what's his nuts from uh, North Carolina. And his stats would have been were are better than Puglazi's, but for Puglazi, three goals, a helper, twenty-seven ground balls, four cost turnovers. I just felt like Maryland's defense was tough, and one of the reasons why was Puglazi was a savage at that short, as a short stick D mid for them. Took a lot of teams other other mids out of the game and allowed their defense to just focus on their matchups and play on the island. So I went with. Paglazy there. My LSM, Jared Connors, no-brainer, four goals, six assists, 85 ground balls, 22 cause turnovers, and another national championship under his belt. So Connors, I think he's the best LSM in the game. Specialist, overall specialist, and I went with the face-off guy, and I, I, it'll be no no uh, secret who I picked here. Petey fucking Lasala, 10 goals, seven assists as a face-off guy. I mean, that's those 17 points as a midfielder are good numbers at the D1 level. Anyway, PD LaSala goes 10 and 7 from the faceoff dot, 137 GBs, 62% win percentage. I know that he had, like, in terms of lacrosse reference, the highest uh, goals added number in, in the country because he touches the ball so much and he puts points up on top of it. So, PD fucking LaSala, he's my guy as my specialist. Uh, defense, and this is the hardest one for me. And it's not because I don't know defense. It's not because I'm not a, a connoisseur of defense and all. The problem with defense is, especially if you're when you're just watching the games without having a fuller insight into the game planning and what they're doing and why, it's hard to tell who a team's best defender is. Oftentimes, a team's best defender will not put up stats consistent with being that team's best defender, which is the case here in one of my picks. But I went with Will Bowen. Safe bet, and I think a legitimate bet. Uh, he had an assist, 37 ground balls, and 28 cause turnovers. I was actually surprised at the 28 cause turnovers because, like I said, oftentimes that poll gets avoided enough that you don't get the, the opportunities to force the turnovers, and Bowen did a very good job. It was, in the ACC, it was kind of hard to avoid guys. You know, the, 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 most of these teams, it was just your best guy was so good that he was going to go and get his looks on anybody. Bowen did battle uh, against Virginia. 
with Matt Moore and did a great job. But overall, Bowen did a great job all season, and Georgetown gains Bowen next year. So that's going to be huge as they're losing a couple of their defensive leaders at Georgetown. They're gaining Will Bowen as a transfer. So that's huge. Uh, this is this is the one where it was tough to call, and I kind of went with what everybody else did with my Jack Keelty pick Notre Dame defender he was Notre Dame's third best defender in terms of statistics but that is often because he was avoided he only had an assist 16 ground balls and six caused turnovers both Thornton and Cohen Arden Cohen had had much better statistics than Kielty but the fact that Kielty I do know that Kielty got avoided I do know that the guy who Kielty guarded was quiet the guy that Kielty guarded didn't touch the ball anywhere near his normal average. That that partly factors into my decision and just seeing him play. The eye test, he passes that as well. So I kind of went with the voting coaches in that case with Kielty and the media poll. And I'm not sure how I feel about it because he statistically was not the best defender on his team, was the third best defender on his team. But in terms of quality, you know, you got to make the argument for the guy. And then I went with JT Giles Harris. And once again, I don't think JT Giles Harris, he wasn't even the best cover guy on his team. Bauer, Brower, Bauer. Uh, he was the best cover guy in the Duke team. But JT Giles Harris, just overall, uh, an assist, 34 ground balls, 19 cost turnovers, would get the ball started in transition a lot more than his uh, his points would indicate with just having that single assist. So JT Giles Harris is my third defender there. And I'm not. And none of these are in any particular order. I'm just throwing guys out as they came to my head and as I wrote them down. My goalie, and this one may be surprising to some, not to others. I went with Colin Kirst. A lot of people went with... Um, uh, um, what's his nuts from Georgetown? Not McElroy. I want to call him McElroy, but uh, uh, they went with the Georgetown kid. I go with Curse. Fifty-seven percent save percentage for Rutgers. I think he was the biggest reason Rutgers had a huge season this year. You can make the argument, yeah, offensively they were great, blah blah blah, and that is true. But what Colin Kirst did in Cage is what allowed them to keep a little bit of pace with Maryland, and it's what allowed them to do what they did in terms of getting that first-round win. Colin Kirst had a hell of a season. I did not expect him to even be their starting goaltender because coming into this year, he didn't have starting experience at Lehigh, at least not as far as I know. I was covering him as a, a solid transfer, but not someone that was likely to even play. And not only did he play, but he played at an extremely high level. Game in, game out, he was a solid presence on that defense. So I And, and I think that defense overachieved largely because of him. So I go with Colin Kirst as my goalie. Now we get into the special awards here. We go start with a rookie of the year. My rookie of the year I give to Brennan O'Neill, freshman from Duke. He was a legitimate freshman so that's partly why I don't like I don't think red shirts really deserve to be a rookie of the year because they've most red shirts, unless it was an injury, a red shirt for an injury reason, got a full season of practice leading into that first season of play after that. So I go with O'Neill, 45 goals, 10 helpers, had an incredible season at Duke, uh, was their second leading scorer overall to Sowers and he's going to be the reason Duke is going to continue to win and keep pace and make the tournament year in and year out because that kid is filthy. So watch him. And he will have no problem taking over as this team's main offensive threat next year. Kid can carry the ball, finish off ball. He can do whatever is called upon and asked of him. So he's going to be fine even with the guys that Duke loses next year. He'll probably be better. I would expect him to put up in the area 70 to 80 points next year. He's that good. 
uh, breakout player of the year. And this one is a no brainer to me. It goes to Connor Schellenberger. Now breakout player of the year is typically a dude who's played that all of a sudden just steps on, you know, like it would be like a Jack Hanna maybe last year as he step, you know, as he went from being just a really solid midfielder to being, you know, the best midfielder in the country potentially. But I give it to Schellenberger for the red shirt reason. He was at Virginia on campus the whole year and practiced with them through that COVID shortened season as long as they got to. And this year is kind of like his second year, even though it's really his first year playing. And you can't argue with the the numbers. 37 goals, 42 assists, 43% shooting, MVP of the NCAA tournament. To me, the breakout part comes in that he wasn't even starting on attack the whole season. He was being shuffled in at midfield, you know, rotated in an attack. There was Virginia had to had to do a lot of work to figure out what they wanted to do with their offensive flow. So he broke out halfway through the season when it became very apparent that despite the fact he hadn't been starting, uh, you know, everywhere, uh, hadn't been playing attack, had been kind of floating in, in, in as a, pos- a positionless offensive player over time. Halfway through the season, it became very apparent he was Virginia's best player and he finished the season as Virginia's best player. So I think that's why he's the breakout player of the year in my mind is that he broke out and went from being some guy that were trying to find time because he was really good to being, hey, this is our best player. We need to keep him on the field and feature him in our offense through the tournament. My player of the year, overall player of the year, this is my Twarton, and I'm going to give it to Jared Bernhardt. I, I'm still my, uh, team Mike Sowers, and I still think Mike Sowers was the best all-around lacrosse player um, in the country. I'm, I'm doubling down on that. But to pretend Jared Bernhardt didn't mean more to his team Game in, game out, game out. His production was off the charts every single game he played. Uh, even in the champion, even in the loss in the championship, he had a hell of a game. So I don't think he did. He have a game that he put up less than five points. I'm not sure that he did. Um, so in the end, I think just the, once again, it's the way he did it. He put the points up, game in, game out. He was the best player, most important player on his team for, in every single game that they played. Not that Sowers wasn't, not that Gray wasn't, but. I just think that his dominance and the way that he went out and got his points and led his team is why I end up going with him for player of the year. And then the final award here to end this pod- podcast today, and then we're going to be done with college across and we're going outside of news and crap. And then we're moving fully into the PLL for the next episode. It's the biggest balls of them all award. The lax factor, biggest balls of them all award goes to, and I'm going to say, before I announce this, it's not Jared Bernhardt, but I thought about giving it to Jared Bernhardt because, like I said, he played with enormous, like just he was the most aggressive testosterone-filled player in the field for sure. But I give the biggest balls of them all award. This let me go a little deeper, build the suspense. My thinking behind this award is: what player has gotten through, battled through some adversity? What player has become a team leader despite that adversity? What player has played at a high level, has helped his team pick up wins and all of that stuff and, and has done that all, you know, exempt, you know, being a, the, the epitome of having big balls. And I'm going with Alex Rode, the goalkeeper for Virginia. And I, I, I'm legit like I'm this award it, to me. Name, putting Alex Road in this place is important to me because Alex Road deserves this. This kid, the, the the 2019 national championship season, this kid got benched 
against Princeton. He had played rough leading into the Princeton game, got benched against Princeton. Virginia brings in their backup goalie. The backup goalie puts up like 20 saves in the game. But then the backup goalie the following game and the game after didn't play great either. So Road works his way back into the rotation. Then he works his way back into the starting lineup. And then he wins a national championship as the goalkeeper for Virginia in 2019. Fast forward to last year. Was having a pretty good season. Fast forward to this year was having a good season. He was solid all year. He was not the best goalie in the ACC, but he kept pace. He played solid lacrosse, but once again, you get this kid into the tournament and he he like he stood on his head in the national championship in 2019. He did the same thing. Now, neither goalie played a great game in this national championship game here this year, but he had the better game and he's the goalie that made the save in the final minute of the game to clinch it on a one-on-one. You know, granted, it was a face-off guy taking the shot. If and if and granted, if th- that shot didn't hit Road in the body, it was probably going in as close to the cage and as open of a look as it was. But Road was in the right position. He made the save. His team wins the national championship, and it's just like, all right, this goalkeeper now has two national championships after getting benched uh, partway through the ninth, uh, twenty the twenty nineteen season. I mean, to me. He's battled through adversity. He's continued to lead his team despite that. He became the unequivocal leader of that defense this year, and then they end up winning another national championship with him making the game-saving save at the end. So the Lax Factor Biggest Balls of Them All Award goes to Alex Road. Congrats to him on another national championship, and I hopefully that doesn't happen again and Syracuse will beat his, his ass next year and beat them in the tournament and all that crap. But hey, Alex Road is a pimp of a goalie. Congrats to him. Congrats to Virginia. Uh, Congrats to Tiffany. Uh, Coach of the year for me. I don't even do coach of the year because to me, the coach of the year every year should be the guy that wins the national championship. If you, you know, to me, as a coach, you want to win the national championship. And as a coach, you're cool with seeing the guy who wins the national championship get coach of the year every year. So it goes to Tiffany here in my mind if I were to do a coach of the year, but I'm not going to. That's what the national championship is for. So that's it. Next episode, PLL only. I'm gonna. I'm not going to do full game recaps and things like that. I'm going to try to cover storylines in the PLL each week, and uh, we'll just touch on standings and you know matchups and things like that as well. But I'm mostly going to try to cover storylines, talk players, and talk interesting things that happened each weekend because Lord knows enough interesting things has ha- have happened to the PLL over these last couple of weekends. So that's how we'll do that. So next episode, fully dedicated to the PLL, and we'll do that through the rest of the summer. And uh, that's it, everyone. As always, like, subscribe, hit the notification bell, go to laxfactor.com, support us, get swag, all that good shit. And uh, I'll be back here. I don't know. I'll probably do. I've got to figure out my PLL schedule too. I like to do podcasts like a podcast for the PLL on Mondays, but Mondays are rough for me. So maybe we decide on Tuesday. But right now my schedule is up in the air. And uh, the day that I put that first PLL podcast out, I'll have decided and I'll stick to that schedule the rest of the summer. So you guys aren't wondering when I'm going to put content out. But that's all. Hoost is out. Hoost is out.